1: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
0: On this episode, part one of a two-part series on occult symbols in cinema.
2: There is this decided occult influence with the James Bond stories, where there is this very deep hermetic occult influence upon the Bond stories. For example, the 007 sigil. 007 this comes straight out of the world of alistair prowley
0: this podcast is supported by my good friends at paranormal contractors a division of crime and trauma scene cleaners now someone out there is dealing with unwanted paranormal activity in their home or business maybe this is you this is nothing to be trifled with You need to bring in a reputable, professional team to deal with this problem. Paranormal Contractors use the latest technology and years of experience to thoroughly investigate, authenticate, and remediate your ghost or demon problem. Call 1-866-724-0800. 1-866-724-0800. Or email them at paranormalcontractors at gmail.com. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors for things that go bump in the
1: night. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites.
0: Hope you've recovered from your Super Bowl festivities. I know, I know, those first five days after the weekend are the hardest. Hang in there. Well, that was a low-scoring affair. Uh, Congrats to the New England Patriots and to quarterback Tom Brady, who has started filling up his second hand with Super Bowl rings. A lot of people emailing me saying the Super Bowl is rigged, it's all scripted. Some are even saying it's some kind of occult mind control ritual. I don't know, maybe. I know I host a conspiracy show and a conspiracy podcast, but sometimes I just want to leave all that aside and, and enjoy the game. you know what I mean? Robert Sullivan has spent a lot of time thinking hard about occult symbolism in our culture, particularly in cinema. In fact, he's written two rather hefty tomes on the subject, and he's hard at work on a third. Robert is a Freemason, philosopher, historian, antiquarian, jurist, lay theologian, writer, mystic, radio TV personality, best-selling author, CEO, and a lawyer. The Royal Arch of Enoch, the impact of Masonic ritual philosophy and symbolism was his first published work, being the product of 20 years of research. In 2014, Robert published his second book, Cinema Symbolism, a guide to esoteric imagery in popular movies. His third book, Cinema Symbolism two more esoteric imagery from popular movies, was likewise published in 2017. That same year, in December, he published his first work of fiction, A Pact with the Devil. Robert is currently working on five books at once, including Freemasonry and the Path to Babylon, Cinema Symbolism three, and a sequel and prequel to A Pact with the Devil. Robert Sullivan, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you?
2: Uh, Thank you, Richard. I am well. Uh, Thank you for having me on your show. It's a pleasure to be here. Looking forward to it.
0: What is the importance or why is it important to study uh, occult uh, symbology in cinema? Why is that important?
2: Oh, I think I think just in general, not just only in the movies, it's it, it's a higher level of consciousness. Um, you will understand, you will have a deeper meaning of what these filmmakers, the mythologies, and the uh, esotericisms that they are going for. You you will you will understand that these movies are veiling are veiling these very ancient mystical doctrines. So, in my estimation, it not only goes with movies, but it's part of it. You know not only in popular culture but I think it's um, you'll understand a higher level of consciousness when you uh, can understand this and interpret it um, in their proper context
0: and when when you talk about occult symbology uh, are we talking about I mean we tend to think of occult as sometimes something sinister or in the in the judeo-christian tradition we might even consider it to be demonic what do you mean by the occult
2: uh, well I usually take the uh, literal meaning of the word, which means hidden. Um, so I'm dealing with hidden symb- symbolism, uh, things that are there but are hidden beneath the surface or hinted at or will be looked over by the passive viewer. Um, it, depending on the intent of the filmmaker, it can be sinister. Um, it, it can be, you know, positive. My, my in, in doing all of this, my uh, findings are that it's, it's really... Um, Sort of transforming the film into a higher level of artwork. Uh, That—that's what I get get out of it. It's—it's it's, they're trying to embed these mystical doctrines to draw forth uh, in your subconscious mind uh, mythology, as it were. That—that's what it seems to. Um, to conjure it to me, or that's what it seems to be to me. But um, certainly, some of the films definitely have um, sinister elements uh, in uh, in them, and they can use sinister uh, symbols to convey this. Um, that's irrefutable.
0: Do the filmmakers have an agenda in 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 embedding or encoding uh, these occult symbols?
2: I think I think the answer is yes. To that, but I think it can. It, it, it the the answer is um, the the agenda can be varied. Um, I don't think there's one uniform univo- you know universal answer to that. I think the the um, it depends on what the filmmaker is going for. Um, so the answer is yes, they can do it. But it de- but what what I like is um, and this is really when you get into movie makers with a higher level of sophistication is they will use certain things in some movies but not in others or they won't use it at all. It depends on what they're going for. It depends on what the overarching theme of the movie is or the char- character development. Um, that a lot of times dictates the context of how the symbolism is pre- presented. And again, it, it just depends on the level of sophistication of the movie maker. Some movie makers are very adroit with it. Others are more fledgling. Um, but they, but you know, a lot of times it's there. It's just looking at the movie in its context and see what it is on an esoteric level that the movie maker is really trying to strive for
0: so one of the examples that you you discuss is uh, star wars which to me is kind of the classic hero epic uh let's let's talk about some of the symbology here and let's talk about one of the central characters of course luke skywalker
2: Right. Well, the the, the, um, the Star Wars saga, and this is episodes uh, four, five, five, and six, although one, two, and three has it, and so do the new ones. Um, but if you just go back to the original Lucas trilogy, you are dealing with the Joseph Campbell monomyth, which is a story in comparative religion, comparative mythology, where... You have this, soul, this this hero, Luke Skywalker, who's really a personification of the sun. I mean, that's what his name literally means. You have the word Luke, meaning lux or sun, and then skywalking, you know, what light moves across the sky, the sun. Um, and this is uh, really a study in comparative religion, comparative mythology, where his, his equal would be uh, the Egyptian Horus or the uh, sun god Apollo, um, who is de- doing battle with Set or Python. And, of course, in in the Egyptian school, this would be um, Horus, who does battle with uh, Set. And, of course, this is why you have the dark figures being the Sith. Uh, This would be Darth Vader and the Emperor. And then, of course, if you turn to the uh, sun god Apollo, he had the lunar sister Diana. And, of course, Skywalker has the lunar sister uh, Leia, who's always in the white robes. So you you have this very... um, arcing storyline of the solar mythology with Skywalker uh, being plucked from the populace. And if you, if you look at the Campbell monomyth, if you look at the cycle of this thing, you will, you will find loads of the elements that Campbell talks about. And again, what what Campbell's talking about is how these turn up in comparative mythologies, whether it be Perseus or Apollo. Um, You know, you're going back into antiquity to to find these uh, studies, this monomythic story. And and they all have these same uh, inevitable elements. Um, you know, the the, the call to adventure where Skywalker finds out that he has a a greater destiny than he does on Tatooine. Uh, The idea of of obtaining supernatural aid. Um, And this is always usually the form of a hermit type figure who supplies some sort of hidden knowledge uh, or wisdom to the hero. Um, And and you will find this comparatively in in other movies as well. Um, You look at Star Wars and then you look at like the Harry Potter movies uh, it's kind of almost the same thing where you know Harry Potter is plucked from the general populace he has the hermit figure which would be Dumbledore in in the Star Wars movie this would be filled by the Kenobi uh, character you know and after Kenobi's death it would be uh, the Yoda would be the stand-in for this. So we're dealing with a lot of, in, in Star Wars, we're dealing with a lot of uh, deep comparative of uh, religious symbol, symbolism, overarching themes relating to the Joseph Campbell monomyth. Um, and you'll find this even in, in, not only in the Star Wars movies, but you'll find these exact same theme- themes in, in movies such as Harry Potter, or you know even the Matrix films, or Chronicle of Narnia, where it's the solarized hero who's doing battle with some dark evil overlord. Uh, and and really, that that's what the you know symbolism is uh, going forward in, in the Star Wars movies. Um, they're they're very well done. Um, Lucas admits this. Uh, if, for example, I mean, even in the uh, Campbell copy I have here of of The Hero with a Thousand Faces. That's the Campbell book uh, that that is discussing all this. On the dust jacket, it has a testimonial from Lucas. So we know this is what he was using and going for. And he's just a great example of how these ancient mythologies are working their way into popular culture, being rebranded and recycled uh, to gain a new audience.
0: You mentioned Narnia, C.S. Lewis, of course, uh, one of the great Christian apologists. Uh Correct. I mean, to me, when I when I watch that movie and knowing, of course, C.S. Lewis's work, uh, I see sort of overtly Christian themes, and and of course the lion, you right. know, the lion of Judah, the tribe of Judah, Christ, absolutely, Christ. So, um, I mean, w- why would C.S. Lewis use sort of the the Christian uh, symbology, and Lucas would would revert to, let's say. Um Ancient Egyptian uh, mythology, or is there or, or are there similarities between the two?
2: Oh, right. There is overlap. Um, there's definitely overlap um, between the monomyth and whether you're talking about Christianity or pagan motifs, uh, things like that. There, there, There is overlap with that. I mean, in, in the Narnia stories, I mean, you can clearly see the call to adventure um, with the discovery of the wardrobe. You have the hermit figure who is the professor um, who kind of encourages them to look, you know, to go further. This would be the Kenobi character um, or the... Uh, um, yoda character or the morpheus character this this is a figure who um, actually turns up in in christianity uh, it's a pagan figure um, his name is hermes trismegistus um who is this pagan god but um the christian fathers leave him alone because uh, according to legend hermes trismegistus prophesized the coming of jesus christ um so the early christian fathers give give hermes trismegistus a pass um you know when it comes to paganism and things like that but no, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, Lewis was certainly a Christian apologist, and you will clearly see, um, you know, these overarching themes where the the lion character Aslan is clearly an embodiment of Christ. I mean, he's scourged, he's mocked, um, even when he's resurrected. I mean, I think the, the girls are only present, um, denoting, you know, in the Christian in, in in the Christian gospel tales of Mary Magdalene being the first I think to see Jesus. Yes. So you'll find yes. that, yeah, that you'll find that in in, in the C.S. Lewis um, story. Um, so no, you, you you can definitely see some overlap um, with with Narnia and with the monomyth and Christianity. Um, there there is definitely some overlapping features.
0: And also in the sort of the the hero myth, you have the the, the hero figure. Whether it's Christ, uh, whether it's uh, Harry Potter, there's you know descending into the depths right. and, and then arising again. Uh, now I'm trying to remember with Luke Skywalker. I, there is a a scene where he's uh he's walking through this dark tunnel and he confronts Darth Vader. Is that the moment? I'm thinking
2: well, right. of Go ahead.
0: No, I'm just wondering if 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 I'm trying to see if there is that common thread in a hero myth where the 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 hero descends sort of underground only to reemerge.
2: Well right, when when you when you're dealing with it like you know with star wars and harry potter you will find elements but they're not all uniform some leave elements out some have elements in um some you know sort of skip elements over um one of you know but you will find a lot of them there a lot of the stuff going on with the star wars has to do with this element called apotheosis and atonement with the father which has to do with coming to grips with the evil ogre uh father figure um this is somewhat absent in the chronicle of narnia stories in in the in the Star Wars films, it's obviously the Darth the it's the atonement of the Darth character Darth Darth Vader character, but like in Harry Potter, um, you know you will see the the Christian elements of where where with death and resurrection um, being killed and resurrected as as the as the, as the Christ figure. Um, you'll find this in in the Matrix films where the Neo character. Uh, is killed and resurrected, although he, the, the neo-figure in, in The Matrix re- resembles more of a Gnostic Christ um, than, than he would in, in sort of an orthodox setting. Um, so there is overlap. There is um, exclusion as well. They don't all parallel each other. I think if filmmakers did that, it would all stand out. Um, so, I mean, you'll find certain elements in one story, but that is maybe missing in another story. Uh, but it, over, overall, um, you can definitely find these overarching themes, and, you know, clearly present, um, you know, in a lot of ancient mythologies. But it's tweaked. You know, the the, the filmmakers uh, d- deliberately tweak it. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's essentially the same, only they change some of the characters. They deliberately, you know, skew it maybe a little bit here. Uh, things like that. I mean, that's, that's to be assumed and accounted for.
0: Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. And what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love Tales of the Paranormal. But if you want more, listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. You mentioned The Matrix, which is just, you know, a terrific uh, series of films. And uh, you mentioned that it's more of a a Gnostic approach, which I can see. Uh, For those not familiar with gnosticism and i think of um you know these these figures appearing through history from time to time um th- 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 to warn us or to to save us because we are th- th- they, we're sort of living on this prison planet and uh, which is being guarded by these archons and once in a while these these um uh what is the word i'm looking for um
2: like illuminator figures. Yes,
0: they come through like whether it's right. Christ or whether it's uh you know uh um Muhammad or whomever So is 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 that what Neo represents?
2: Absolutely. Um in the Ma- the Matrix when you're dealing with gnosticism, there's really three fountainheads of gnostic thought, um M- Mani, Valentinus and Basilides. And Valentinus is the one that you see in a lot of the movies. He's the one everyone knows, but probably don't, but probably do not attribute it to him. And and his his cosmology, his theology, is really the Matrix movie, where it's what you're talking about. Is you have this a sort of false reality, which is planet Earth. Uh, you have the it's it's akin to the prison planet. You have it's 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 a, an artificial construct. Created by this lesser God figure known as the Demiurge, and he employs this host of archons. This would be the agents led by Smith in the um, in the Matrix movies to keep mankind, to keep humankind in stasis, to keep them asleep, to keep them unconscious. And then you have in in the Valentinius cosmology, the the Jesus figure, the Jesus Christ figure is a little different than he's presented in the Orthodox tradition where Christ is the illuminator figure. He's the person sent from this higher Godhead uh, known as the monad um, to sort of, to to bypass the Demiurge, this host of archons and, and is sent into uh, humanity to awaken them, to enlighten them, to ignite their divine spark. uh, So, so that humankind can be conscious of the Demiurge and the archons. And, 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 and it's, it's sort of, Christ is sent in to awaken the Christ divinity in you. Um, and and this was the Valentinian uh, take on, on Christ. They, they would have seen the gospel tale, sort of the orthodox version of Christianity. They would have called this the outer mystery. Um, they didn't really have a problem with it, but they would have said there's deeper meanings to this. And this is what you have in the Matrix movie where the Neo character is clearly the Valentinian Gnostic Christ where he sent in the Morpheus character would be the Hermes Trismegistus um, wizard type figure prophesizing the coming of the Christ uh, character to awaken mankind. Mm-hmm. This is Neo, of course. And, and you'll find this symbolism um, all over the Matrix. I mean, you have the Demiurge character, the uh, figure who is the creator of the false reality. This is the architect. You don't see him into the second movie. You have the Archons, who are, of course, the agents. When, when Neo, I mean, there's there's Christ imagery all, all, all surrounding Neo. Um, when, when, at the very beginning of it, when, when the guy knocks on his door, he calls him Jesus Christ. Um, when Neo finally awakens um, and the, the machines get rid of him, it's brought on board the, the Nebuchadnezzar ship. I mean, he's hoisted cruciform um, into the light. Um, that is clearly a, a Gnostic Christ allegory. And then when he's finally on board the ship uh, and he's brought on board the bridge, that you see the nameplate of the ship. And I, I might be not co- quoting this correctly, but the nameplate of the ship, I believe it says Mark 311. <laughs> And that is a clear reference to the Bible verse of Mark 3.11, where I believe it says, Thou art Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, and all lesser demons will bow before you. And this is investing um, Neo as this uh, Christ savior figure who will deliver mankind from the matrix, deliver them from the archons, the agents. And then you have, obviously, the scene where, you have the death and resurrection scene where Neo is killed. And then you have You know, in Gnosticism, the Sophia character, uh, this Aeon-type figure who is sort of the female equivalent of the Gnostic Christ to help him along. This is, of course, the Trinity uh, character played by uh, Catherine Moss, I believe it is. Um, And, of course, she helps him in his death and resurrection uh, sequence. And then at the very end of the movie, you have uh, Neo, of course, ascending into the heavens at the end, like Jesus basically you know, saying, I'm gonna awaken mankind, and, or humankind, and I'm, I'm gonna bring them out of this false reality. So yes, The, the Matrix is this decidedly Gnostic uh, tale on Christianity um, that's very well done. I mean, I, I would say, you know, from a Gnostic Valentinian standpoint, uh, this movie is, is very well done. And i been on other shows talking about this. I mean, if you really wanna see Gnosticism proper on, in, in film, Probably the Matrix movie would be the one that I would guide them to. Uh, that, that's really the one. I mean, there are, are the ones that, have, that echo these exact same themes. But really, the, the Matrix is probably the fountainhead of Gnostic cinema.
0: One of the things I wasn't aware of was the, the friendship between Alistair Crowley uh, and uh, Ian Fleming, behind, the man behind the James Bond uh, books and later films. Tell me about their relationship. How did they
2: meet? Absolutely. This is this is one of my all-time favorite uh, talk points, and this definitely, Richard, comes out of the world of you can't make this stuff up. Alistair Crowley, as a lot of the listeners probably are aware of, was this very famous English occultist. I won't get into his history. I'm sure the listeners are very familiar with this. But um, what a lot of people may not be aware of is that during uh, World War I and World War II, Crowley um, worked in British intelligence. Uh, And he was using these mystical groups that he was a member of, groups such as uh, the Freemasons, uh, the OTO, uh, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, uh, these groups, these esoteric uh, orders, um, he was using them to mingle with and and use them for espionage purposes. Um, A lot of people aren't aware that these these esoteric orders were stomping grounds for intelligence and counterintelligence operations. And during uh, World War II, one of the one of the agents who worked in uh, counterintelligence during World War II was none other than Ian Fleming, um, who, of course, is the author of the Bond books. And one of the people people who was under him was none other than Alistair Crowley. Uh, in fact, and this is true, um, and this comes out of the world of you can't make this stuff up again, was uh, the Nazi, uh, Rudolf Hess, who was Hitler's deputy. In 1941, uh, Hess flew to Scotland uh, to try to broker peace between England and Germany. And Hess was arrested and he was thrown into the Tower of London. It was well known uh, that Hess was very big into the occult, very big into astrology, very big into mysticism. And uh, Crowley actually went to Fleming and said look you've got Rudolf hess let me go up there and you know i'll I'll perform some occult rituals some ars goetia rituals in front of this guy try to summon some demons scare the hell out of him and maybe we can get him to talk about you know some of the other nazis maybe their interest in astrology and the occult uh find out some you know hidden information and fleming was very much uh, on board with this in fact so much so that fleming went to winston churchill with it and uh, the story, or as it goes, the plan was ultimately vetoed. But um, no, Crowley uh, moved in this espionage circle with uh, Fleming, and uh, there were some other characters who were there as well. One of them was Dennis Wheatley, um, who wrote a series of spy novels uh, involving a character named Richard Salust. Uh, His aren't as well known as the Fleming Bond stories, but uh, the one story that Wheatley wrote and that everybody knows was the story called The Devil Rides Out, which was ultimately made into a movie in 1962. And there is a Aleister Crowley analog in that movie named Mokada. And there's a scene in the movie and it appears in the book as well uh, where Mokada summons this uh, left hand path uh, symbol known as the Goat of Mendes uh, at the Sabbath. And uh, this is a complete complete reference to Alex Crowley practicing these uh, occult Ars Goetia-style rituals where he was trying to summon demons, so on and so forth. But no, there was a decided – and then the other character who also uh, moved in the circle was Roald Dahl. Uh, who eventually went on to write the uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory story. But with Fleming, um, it, there is this decided uh, that you can see, you know feel occult influence with the James Bond stories. This is something I talk about in the first movie book, um, where there's this, oh, there's this very deep uh, hermetic occult uh, influence upon the Bond stories. Uh, I mean, for example, I won't belabor this too much longer, but I mean, for example, is, the of course, the 007 sigil, 007. Um, I mean, this comes straight out of the world of Aleister Crowley. Uh, this was the uh, symbol used by uh, an English magician and astrologer named Dr. John Dee, who was uh, Queen Elizabeth the, the first, uh court astrologer. Yes. And he mm-hmm. used, yeah, he used the symbol 007. Uh, he was involved in a spy ring with uh, Sir Francis Walsingham, and he used the symbol on espionage correspondences with the Queen, with Walsingham, And the symbol denoted that it was supposed to be eyeglasses. It was two zeros with a line over it and then a line going down. And it was supposed to denote um, that the correspondence was for her eyes only or that he was his eyes, her eyes in the field. And uh, it was a symbol, you know, still used to this day, a phrase still used to this day. So you when it comes to the James Bond stories. Um, you will find this very deep hermetic occult influence upon them, and this is coming straight from uh, Alistair Crowley.
0: John Dee is one of my favorite, uh, I suppose Elizabethan figures in that in that era of history, uh, and I've done I've done shows on John Dee. Um, uh, this is a bit of a departure from where we're what we were talking about, but I, I had you heard okay. that Dee may have been responsible. You know, the the storm that really saved Great Britain from the Spanish Armada. Some have attributed John Dee to casting some sort of a
2: spell. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. No, I'm on board with that. Um, the, the, I've, I've heard that one as well. Um, he is he he is a very critical person in that English time frame. He actually divined the date of when uh, Queen Elizabeth should be coronated. And he said, if you get coronated on this day, it'll herald this great golden age. Um, and it did, of course. And he, yeah, I mean, I mean, he he's a very important character. He was involved with the spy ring, uh, with Sir Francis Walsingham. Other people involved with this were uh, his partner in crime, Edward Kelly, Giordano Bruno, Francis Drake, uh, Sir Walter Raleigh. They were all trying to keep uh, Sir, uh, Queen Elizabeth the safe, essentially, say, from uh, assassination attempts. The Jesuits were planning to kill her, um, scheming all over the place. So they formed this sort of, I call it a Rosicrucian spy ring uh, to essentially keep Queen Elizabeth I safe from the uh, Jesuits scheming the counter-reformation. Um, no, I, I do not dispute you that he may have cast some sort of spell, uh, summoned a demon. Enochian magic was his forte with Edward Kelly to sink the Spanish Armada. That's very possible, if not probable. And and he, he factors in Um, like I said, I don't want to depart this too much. Um, I wrote a book called the Royal Arch of Enoch. This was my first book on Freemasonry. And I'll just get into this very quickly. Um, there was a, my big thesis in that book was there must've been a lost, um, copy of, of one Enoch floating around out there in Europe prior to its official return to history in 1773. And I speculate, and I think it's, um, strong evidence that John Dee was likely uh, a candidate to have a copy of the lost book of Enoch. Um, To me, this seems very likely. Um, I mean, his name, I mean, he, he, you know, invented a a system of magic, which he called Enochian, um, which was designed to speak to angels and demons. So to suggest that uh, Dee uh, possessed a copy of the book of Enoch prior to its official return to history, I think is highly likely.
0: I wanna tell you about something I've just discovered because I like to share good things with my friends. A couple of weeks ago, I received my one month supply of Life Change Organic Tea in the mail. I followed the very simple instructions and brewed up the Life Change Tea concentrate. Just two bags are enough to make a gallon of this refreshing caffeine-free organic herbal tea. And with every glass, I gotta tell you, I feel more energized. I feel like I'm being cleansed from the inside out. It's really more than a tea. I've actually started to crave the herbs in Life Change Tea. Now we have an entire cupboard filled with every kind of herbal tea imaginable and I can honestly say nothing compares to Life Change Tea. Now it's not available in any store, so here's what you need to do. Go to getthetea.com, getthetea.com. Now as a Conspiracy Unlimited listener, you get free shipping on your first order. Simply enter the code UNLIMITED. Why don't you join me and start feeling the cleansing, energizing benefits of this amazing herbal tea I've just discovered. And just saying, it's doing such a great job flushing out my system, I've even dropped a little weight. And I'm just getting started. Why don't you start? Life Change Tea, available at GetTheTea.com.
1: Theoretical physicists say that there's as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, Here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Or something like that. I'll ask Richard later.
0: Robert W. Sullivan IV is here discussing occult symbolism in cinema. You say that in the James Bond movies, they feature elements of Gnosticism. We've sort of discussed Gnosticism with uh, The Matrix. You also say elements of Rosicrucianism. Uh, first of all, for those not familiar, what, what are the tenets of Rosicrucianism?
2: Right, it it should be thought of more as an a philosophy than it is than an actual group. Although there are people in history that you can point to that say you can say, oh, you know, this person is a Rosicrucian. Um, John D. associates with the Rosicrucian. C- Rosicrucians. It's what I would definitely call like a, a proto Masonic secret society dealing with ancient mystery schools, alchemy, um, magic. Sorcery and its underlying philosophy was the idea of transforming base metal into gold. Only this was symbolic. It was based. It was. It was the idea of transforming ignorance into enlightenment. Um, The the um, English author wrote wrote an excellent book on this named Francis Yates, and she hypothesizes that it was a a failed enlightenment attempt. um, That it's sort of the enlightenment, the the Rosicrucianism, the Rosicrucian uh, influence on Europe was sort of a failed enlightenment, um, that it was sort of ahead of its time, and it was a proto-enlightenment movement. And I agree with her. Um, I, I think that's really a good way of looking at it, was it was, it was sort of this, uh, enlight- in this pre-enlightenment, pre-Masonic uh, philosophy and organization that was probably ahead of its time, um, that surfaced, but the world probably wasn't ready ready for it yet, and it kind of disappeared almost as quickly as it came, but its its fingerprints lasted Onto the Enlightenment and on to, uh, you know, sort of the Rosicrucian successor, which is, of course, the Freemasons.
0: And, so- and where in the James Bond films uh, do we see elements of Rosicrucianism?
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, well, the, the, the you know, you, you have with Rosicrucianism, the idea of of alchemy, um, the marriage of the sun and moon to receive enlightenment. Of course, this is symbolic. This is the masculine and the, fem- the unification of the sun and moon, the masculine and the feminine. And of course, this is what the entire James Bond stories are about. You have this masculine solarized hero, James Bond, who's put on this quest to go up against some sort of, you know, Gnostic style demiurge, this overarching villain, you know, or goldfinger the alchemist who is trying to transmute mutate the gold in force in fort knox make his gold supply worth more money the dragon hugo drax the illuminati character Ernst stavro Blofeld, who's trying to take over the world and it's always the same thing you have the hermes trismegistus enlightener uh figure who supplies bond with the sacred wisdom which is always in the form of a gadget which is to save his life And in order for Bond to eventually conquer the villain, it's this meeting with the moon, the sacred feminine, the Bond girl, which he always has to unify with. And this equips him spiritually to go on and then defeat the uh, Bond uh, villain, you know, who is always this sort of over the top, uh, very theatrical character. So it's this Rosicrucian element of male, female unification. This is alchemy. Um, this is really alchemy one hundred and one, and then it's it's al- you know unified darkness falls. We have light, we have enlightenment. So it's the same theme going on in all the Bond stories, and uh, you know male female unification defeating darkness. Um, that's very alchemical. That's very Rosicrucian. Um, and again, you'll find this these fingerprints literally all over the Bond stories, and they turn up in the movies as well.
0: Uh, I, I want to spend some time talking about the Wizard of Oz. And sure. um, uh, I mean, there, there were a series of books by L. Frank Baum. Uh, talk to me about what you say are the political allegories and initiation into the mysteries contained in, uh, in the works of L. Frank Baum.
2: Absolutely. Um, the Wizard of Oz is such a great um, exemplar to talk about because this is, a, this is a film and a story that's multi-leveled and multi- or, or multi-layered. Um, as many of these films are, you think you may have them figured out, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, there's even a deeper meaning to them. And The Wizard of Oz is a, a case in point for this. We have really three stories going on inside of one with this. One is this is your exoteric adventure. This is what, you know, the, You know this is the story for the the, the profane. Albert Pike would say, which is you have a farm girl being swept away to a magical land, has an adventure, meets some weird characters, defeats an evil witch, goes back home, end the story, goodbye, have a nice day. This is your exoteric explanation. And then you have these two deeper meanings uh, in the movie, which is this political allegory, and then you have this occult initiation into the mystery schools, initiation into Gnosis, even beneath the surface of that. And the political one is probably the more well-known of the two. Uh, the, the, the Wizard of Oz, I believe it was released in 1900, is a uh, retelling of political, socioeconomic American life from about 1895 to 1900. You had a big-time depression in 1896, and you have the whole idea of the farm being whisked away by foreclosure because many farmers lost their uh, farms due to the depression Uh, you have the wizard of oz is william mckinley who was president at the time he backed uh, paper money but he wanted a gold standard to back paper money this is why the yellow brick road or the gold standard always leads to paper money or emerald city green Uh, you have the whole idea of Um, Dorothy being the everyday girl, the everyday American citizen. Uh, She is sort of a personification of Theodore Roosevelt. Dorothy backwards is Theodore. uh, And she carries around a little dog named Toto. Uh, This is a representation of one of the uh, characters that she meets, which is the cowardly lion. Um, And the cowardly lion is a personification of William McKinley's political challengers, Eugene Debs, the socialist, or Williams Jennings Bryant, the Democrat. Um, Williams, Jennings, they were all bark, no bite, hence a cowardly lion. But Jennings was a non alcoholic. He didn't drink beer. He was a teetotaler, um, Toto, teetotaler, where the dog's name comes from. And then you had the whole idea of Scarecrow being the um, American farmer. Uh, the, the Tin Man is the American laborer who is laid off due to this uh, um, depression of 1896. And and what put the American laborer back to work was the oil companies of Rockefeller and Morgan. This is when they meet the tin man, he's immobile, he can't move, and to get him moving, they to oil him up. Um, That's a reference to Rockefeller and Morgan. So you have this deep political allegory of American life from about 1895 to 1900. But then on a very occult level, you have what I call initiation into gnosis, initiation into the mystery schools. Um, And this should come as no surprise because I point out in the book that Baum was himself a member of Madame Blavatsky's Theosophy Society, which was this neo-occult, neo-gnostic group coming out of the 19th century. So we have, in, in on that front, on this symbolism, we have the idea of Dorothy um, being initiated into the mysteries, initiated into Gnosis, which, uh, you know, it's to know thyself. It's to have this cosmic awakening, uh, which is for her... Um, there's no place like home. That's essentially her Gnostic epiphany. And then we have the idea of her going up the ladder of Mithras, going up the ladder of Minerva to receive wisdom, which is the tornado being spirited away to this magical land um, she, she she walks on the, the uh, golden path of religion. And this is sort of a Gnostic allegory where Gnosticism taught to be wary of this imitator god known as the Demiurge. And, and she walks on this golden path of religion only to uh, see that it leads to a false messiah, the man behind the curtain, the the false leader, which is the wizard, who's, of course, a huckster. Um, he's not great and powerful. He's just, you know, this little man behind the curtain. Uh, um, curtain. And then along the way, Blavatsky said in order to receive gnosis, in order to receive uh, initiation into the mysteries you need uh, intelligence, fortitude, and courage. And this is why Dorothy has the three companions who are seeking a brain, a heart, and you know courage. Um, The Cowardly Lion, the Tin Man and the Scarecrow. This is a Blavatsky allegory. Um, And then, of course, you have in the book, you only see one of them in the uh, story, the two witches who are trying to keep um, Dorothy stagnant are the east and west, which is horizontal. Uh, you can't move up the ladder of ascension by moving east and west. This is why the two witches who are the negative witches are of the east and west. The two positive witches are of the north and south, symbolizing ascension on the ladder of the mysteries. And then in in the movie, the one good witch you do see, which is Glinda, she has the magic wand tipped with the pentagram on it, Um, And the pentagram with one point up, two points down is white magic, with two points up and one point down is black magic. So she's the white magician. So we have this very deep initiation into into the mysteries, Dorothy receiving gnosis at the end, which is for her to learn there's no place like home. And uh, it's just this great allegory of initiation into the occult, initiation into the mystery schools, while also containing this uh, deep political allegory as well. Um, it's something I talked about in the first book, Cinema Symbolism. And uh, it's just this great multi layered movie, this great multi level story of political allegory and the occult. Um, I, was, right I,
0: I wasn't familiar with the the political allegory that's I mean the the parallels to you know McKinley and Roosevelt and so forth absolutely fascinating um I don't know if you can you've ever dealt with this subject matter or you can answer this but you know doing the conspiracy type program I've come up I've talked to many many people who claim that they've been victims of mind control or they're targeted individuals and a, a number of them um cite the movie The Wizard of Oz as being used by their sort of mind control handlers as some sort of a trigger mechanism. Have you heard that before?
2: I I have heard that, but I I don't... I mean, I'm not... I'm not an expert on that, but I have heard that this movie does, um, has been used in like MK ultra programs, things like that. Um, I don't know, you know, I mean, I guess you could say it could be, um, some sort of trigger device for mind control. Um, it's possible, Richard. Um, I'm not going to say that's not the case. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know since I've never been involved with MK ultra or anything like that. I, I, I know things like this have been used before. Um, I mean, you haven't even have this hinted at in movies, uh, the Manchurian candidate. I mean, the one trigger incident was um, the, uh, the queen of, I think it was the queen of diamonds playing card is the, the trigger device. Um, many people have speculated with Sirhan Sirhan um, that, that he was a Manchurian candidate. Um, for shooting Robert F. Kennedy and the trigger device for him was this mysterious woman in the polka dot dress. Yes. um, Yes. Who who you'll see in in the videos of Robert Kennedy and who kind of vanished. Um, So and and then the other one that's really peculiar is the um, is uh, J.D. Salinger's uh, The Catcher in the Rye. Right. Um, This was used twofold um, in assassinations attempts in in by right in about a three month span with John Lennon, with uh, Mark David Chapman, um, who used it um, he, he was reading it when he shot Lenin, and then Hinckley was reading it when he shot Reagan a few months later in March of eighty-one. So that that seemed to be the trigger device as well. So I have heard this that the Wizard of Oz could be used from some for some occult, um, sinister purpose as mind control. Um, and you have a lot of elements there. I mean, you certainly have a lot of occult elements uh, there. So that really wouldn't surprise me.
0: When you're sitting watching a movie, uh, are you constantly? Uh, looking for these uh, sort of uh, subtexts and and uh, the occult symbology in, in movies? Are they present in almost all movies?
2: It's a great cre- question, Richard. Um, they're present in a lot of movies, but not all movies. And what I find is there's some movie makers who are really expert with it than other movie makers. It, it just depends on the level of sophistication. What I would really stretch is – What I'd really stress, excuse me, is um, it depends on what the movie is about a lot of times. So, I mean, for example, if we're dealing with a movie that deals with a transition of a character where the character starts as something at the beginning, but then winds up as something totally different at the end, we could be dealing with an alchemical story. We could be dealing with a Gnostic story. A lot of movies like to pay homage to other movies, um, to conjure them, to, to sort of embed their movies with the same sort of vibe from other movies. So there are these multifaceted attacks that these filmmakers use. What I really am trying to stress it here is it's not just one thing. Um, don't look for just one thing. It's it's almost formless. Uh, movie makers can use ancient religions. They can use the occult. They can use um, the Abrahamic faiths. They can use ju- ju- you know uh, uh, Judeo-Christian elements. They can use Kabbalah. They can use elements of Christian Kabbalah. Uh, they can use uh, the occult. They can use white magic. They can use black magic. They can use repetition. Um, there is you know when 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 what I find is when these makers filmmakers are doing it, they can use. Certain actors that appear in movies could be designed to conjure conjure something from earlier appearances. Costume, wardrobe, music, all these elements are in play uh, when when, when these filmmakers go to work. Uh, When I watch a movie, yes, I kind of always keep an eye out for it. Um, Some movies are more sophisticated than others. I would stress that really strongly. I've watched some movies that I thought were going to be very highly symbolic, um, which turned out to be kind of duds. I've watched movies that I didn't think were going to be symbolic at all. They were just overloaded. Um, that were just, you know, things were just jumping off the uh, screen at me. Um, once I just, des- you know, deciphered what the context, um, that this movie was being, uh, formulated in. So yeah, when I, when I do watch movies for the first time, I do kind of keep it in the back of my head. Um, but usually for me, um, To do this properly, I definitely have to screen the movie more than one time because it's such a deep study um, and it can be little things just going on in the background that could tip you off to these greater mysteries uh, going on inside the film.
0: So I think if people were to read your book on sort of the occult symbology in films, they're going to appreciate movies on a whole different level.
2: Oh, I hope so. Uh, This was one of my motivations for writing the books. Uh, both both the first movie the book well, the first book was cinema symbolism and then the second book was cinema symbolism two i'm actually working on cinema symbolism three and absolutely is uh is is to give the reader a greater depth of meaning that when they watch these movies to be conscious of, of this, to be conscious of this material because uh, it is definitely there and it is definitely intentional. Intentional by these filmmakers. Occasionally, it might turn up by accident, but my my uh, research is that it, it definitely um, is intentional. I think that's pretty irrefutable at this point in time.
0: Robert, so much to talk about. Let's leave part one here and we'll pick it up again soon.
2: Oh, that sounds great, Richard. Uh, I look forward to returning and thank you for having me on.
0: Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what's coming up next on Conspiracy Unlimited. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly syndicated radio program, The Conspiracy Show, why not consider becoming a supporter? Go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet. That's right, we've changed the name of our Patreon page patreon.com forward slash Strange Planet and check out our three support tiers the truth seeker tier the whistleblower tier and the star chamber tier Donors can receive access to an exclusive monthly Google hangout on air or a monthly live chat with me You can also be eligible for a monthly draw and a chance to win conspiracy show and conspiracy unlimited merch patreon.com forward slash strange planet patreon.com forward slash strange planet Your support is greatly appreciated. Join me Wednesday for part two of my conversation with Robert W. Sullivan IV as we continue to discuss hidden occult symbols in cinema. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now.